Hey, everybody, it's Carrie Champion, and this is The Brown Print, a podcast that offers solutions and guidance for the marginalized and those who feel left out. These discussions will act as a guide to mentor those in need of direction and also to inspire those who feel hopeless. We will move the needle forward and speak out on the issues by way of dialogue and telling stories of those who need to be heard. Obviously, the Black Lives Matter shirt on. Clearly, you want to keep it in that direction today. Would you like to use this platform to deliver any messages to everyone out there? Just that Black Lives Matter. Tyron. How you doing? Would you shake Kobe Covington's hand if he realized that Black Lives Matter? I like your style, and I definitely realize that Black Lives Matter. Tyron, is there anything uh, specifically from a social standpoint that you would that you would like to? Um, I mean, obviously, even even saying the Black Lives Matter thing, is there anything in particular within that that subject that you you would also like to shine some light on? Just the fact that Black Lives Matter. I think it's pretty simple. Currently ranked number six in the UFC welterweight rankings, raised by a single mother along with twelve brothers and sisters. Can you imagine? I didn't know they still did that. Tyron grew up in the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, but he refused to be a statistic. Gifted athlete, he used his natural athleticism to excel not only in high school, but in college as well. A two-time high school All-American state champion, a two-time All-American in college at Missouri State. It's no wonder he dominated the UFC and was called the chosen one. Tyron's biggest achievement may be his goal to be a force for change among young black youth. He opened ATT Evolution to mentor and train inner-city youth and guide them in a better direction. And who better but Tyron Woodley to explain how he created his own brown print. Sit back, listen, relax. I know you'll enjoy this one. Tyron, I don't know if everybody knows this, but you are the 11th of 13 children, and I don't know where they're doing that in America anymore. I'm being sarcastic, but that is, it's hard to do. And you still, to me, are fairly young. So talk to me about your childhood and how how this champion that we know became became whom he is today. You know, I grew up, like you said, I grew up in a family, um, 13. Um, had two younger sisters and everybody else was older. My mom adopted some step brothers and siblings and, you know, family members and friends that were adopted into the situation. So when I grew up, it wasn't so much about the things we had and the materialistic things and being able to go out. Like, you know, I think about my kids now, like my daughter didn't have Christmas four times just because she wants to go to Target. You know what I mean? And I don't think about it that way because I just, I'm so used to my upbringing. We didn't have nothing. You you got one gift for Christmas. You know what I mean? And it might have been in the century. It might have been a pair of shoes that you needed anyway. It might have been, you know what I mean? Right. So so it just really taught me the the quality of life. I had so much love. I had so much support from my family. Uh, my sisters, some of them wanted to do basketball and other sports and things like that. But my family really invested into me. Like I was really one of the only ones to do extracurricular activities. We couldn't afford for everyone else to do. So they say, okay, Tyron looked like he owned something. He's going to go to the wrestling camps. He's going to go to the summer stuff. He's going to, you know, get the vehicle. He's going to do all these other things. And at that time, I was just like, man, I, I can't let him down. You know what I mean? Because I know my sister wanted to play basketball. I know this one wanted to do the band and this one wanted to do the soccer or take um, a different sport. And we just didn't have it. So as I did college wrestling and as I did uh, my first entry level mixed martial arts fights, I was always thinking about that in the back of the head. I always want to put on for my city. I always want my family to be proud of me. I always want to, you know what I mean, go out there and do something different because I grew up gangbanging. I grew up, you know what I mean, 30, 40 fights in the streets and 
people just knew me from fighting. That was my name. That was my reputation. I got that and I earned that because I always had to prove myself. It was like 120 pounds soaking wet and everybody wanted to try me. And, you know, I was that guy that said, all right, let's do it. You know, my mom always told me, she said, you come home, you got beat up, you're getting two of them when you get home. So <laughs> that was always in the back of my head. I think that's interesting because so many people do have, they have that story in the sense of, well, you got street life and it's hard and you're trying to avoid it. But there is something about it that you take into your professional life, whether you want to or not, it's just an aspect of who you are. You were able to take, you know, people picking on you and turn that into something that was an expertise in a career and you got paid for it. Do you ever look at it that way? No, um, you just put it that way for the first time for me. I never really thought about that. You know, I think about it sometimes as if I was a fighter growing up and that's what I had to do. I fought in the house. I fought for everything. I fought for food. I fought for, you know, gangs. I fought for respect. I fought for because people thought I was little. They thought I was a one try, you know. And when I got to mixed martial arts, I had reformed my mind to being a competitor. But I really loved the street lifestyle. I really loved it. Like, like the guys I was rolled the streets with, there was the drug dealers and stuff like that. I, they were Michael Jordan to me. I love, I love to respect the guy. I love how the people were scared of them. And I love, you know, just just the the respect the guy when they walked in the room. I wanted to be that guy so bad. And I tried to. And every time I tried, those guys was like, no, nah, man, we want you to go to college. You're gonna do something different. You know what I mean? Then they take me into their wing, they wouldn't let me sell drugs. They wouldn't let, they would just let me run errands with them. I would go around the neighborhood and I would be that guy. I would clean their shoes. I would wash their cars. That's how I, that's how I did. But that was my hustle because they didn't want me to get my hands dirty. So um, when I got into the sport, I just always wanted to make it. I always wanted to be the best at something. You know what I mean? I never got a chance to be the best at collegiate wrestling. I was an All-American twice. You know, I, I made the Hall of Fame in the University of Missouri. I was the first Big 12 champion they ever had. But I knew I was the best, and I never showed it. I never got to do what I needed to do in the NCAA. You talked about how your family had to invest in you, and only you were allowed, not just you, but most of the times yeah. you were able most to do the, the extracurricular activities because they knew you had something special. When did you have something special? When did you know that? And when did that become known in the neighborhood? So where the street hustlers were like, nah, he can't do this. He's special. When did, when did that become well-known? I was so disciplined as a kid. I was, I was disciplined and I worked my ass off. I've been working since I was 10 years old. And I also been, I've been working since I was 10 years old. My dad left when I was 10 years old. Um, I started doing wrestling when I was 10 years old. So my my sport, I mean, my career as an athlete started at 10 as we go on 28 years straight with no breaks, no off season. I've never had an off season. I've never had a break. I've been, I've been seamlessly in the sport from the age of 10 all the way to 38. Mm -hmm. um, never had a break unless it was an injury. Then, like I said before, my dad, my dad left on my 10th birthday, to be exact. Left on my 10th birthday. I remember walking up and down the street with no shoes on and my like, transformer hand, walking to my aunt's house who lives miles away. But to me, I had that transformer hand. It never really broke me. Mm. My dad lived My dad lived five minutes from my house. He ride past me. I would see him. I would wave at him. I would see him at the grocery store. And he just became another person to me. I didn't hate him. I didn't love him. I would see him. He tried to give me money. I'm like, no, I'm good. Or cool, and I went about my business, but I was so focused from from a from a young kid to the point when we got evicted, and I was living with my friend. There was no parents there. My friend had their parents had um, remarried, so the mom was in a different house, the dad was in a different house, 
and they gave their house to the kids. Mm. So it was no person to tell me what to do. It was no person to tell me to study. It was no person to tell me to have a curfew or go to sleep. I lived there because I didn't want to go to one of the schools in the city. I mean, you can do the Google search on what St. Louis City is like. And I didn't want to go to school there. And all my friends was in the county. So I lived with my friend for two years. I wasn't with my mom. I wasn't with my dad. I lived with friends for two years so I can go to my high school. But within that two years, I was on a roll. I was, you know, all American this. I was state champion that. I was all state this. And you know what I mean? My grace was, cr- I was in a German National Honor Society. And I don't even know if I can sprick and see any Deutsch right now, but I was like anything I put my hands on. I broke every uh, record in the ROTC program. But that came from somewhere. Where did that discipline, that dedication, that determination to make sure that you were excellent at all costs, that you never take breaks, that you work harder than everybody in the room, where does that come from? I mean, my mom was always a hard worker. My mom had three jobs. She was a a by request manager at night. So she would work triple and double shifts overnight. And she may be there for a day and a half, two days sometimes. And she did that because... She knew we had to make it. And I had wrestling camps and I had stuff that we wanted to do. And, you know, she never said no. Like we would pick and choose which utility was getting cut off. Um, it may have been the lights this month. It may have been the gas the next month, depending on the weather. weather. Uh, if it's wintertime, then obviously we need the gas. If it's summertime, we need the air conditioning. So, you know what I mean? We kind of, it, it sounds crazy, but I remember putting big pots of hot water on the stove, boiling it and having to recycle bath water. And God forbid, if you're the last one in there, you already did the math. You know what I mean? You sit and I don't know, even know what. Oh but my God. Th- that's that's what we did. And that's you know, rough. I grew up I grew up getting suspended every week. Three days here, two days here, ISS, ten days, ten days. They were they when anytime you're in my school you get suspended for ten days, they recommend you get suspended for ninety days. Well, so why were you I getting suspended? I was a little asshole. I was a class clown. I was a bully. I was. I thought I was funny to be funny. And I enjoyed, like I said before, I always enjoyed the attention of, you know what I mean? Everybody thinking you cool and thinking you funny and you the man. You can fight and people know not to fuck with you. You can beat them up. I, I loved that because I was so little and everybody tried me. So I loved that. So it got me in trouble. You know, I got in trouble so many times that after the third time when it was actually valid for me to fight, you know what I mean? I got suspended for 90 days. I missed my whole first semester of high school. I missed homecoming. I missed all the first day of school outfits you laid out. I missed seeing the new girls coming from middle school. And I was in this, I was in this um academic support center called, it was called the Ed Center. And everybody was in one fucking class. It didn't matter if you was in ninth grade or if you were a senior. We took mm. the same classes. It was so easy. I used to finish all my work from the whole week. And one day, and I was done. I sat there. Mm-hmm. Nobody, no accountability. They didn't care because we we weren't supposed to graduate. We weren't mm-hmm. supposed to live. A lot of my friends had died, got shot and killed in the street or in jail or, you know what I mean, out there talking about the barbershop, how they used to be a better wrestler, a better runner than me. But I'm the one that took it all away. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Because, because mentally I was wired the way. So I saw, I think it's something shook me. It was one day I was in that class and I was, we ate lunch in the same room. They moved the tables. We played basketball in the same room. We did all of our subs. I was in that fucking room for 90 days straight. So then I just looked around and said, that motherfucker going to jail. He going to get killed because he fucking crazy. He ain't going to never do nothing. And I'm like, I'm them. So then when I got out of that ad center, I did my little 90-day bid. 
And I went to high school and it was like, okay, you know, we, we want to push you on, um, they thought I had ADHD. They want to put me on Rentland or whatever, whatever thing to calm my ass down. They want to put me on a medication. They want to put me on a special um, behavior team for kids that are fucking bad. And my mom was like, hell no, you ain't put my son on the team. You ain't giving him no medicine, right? You know what I mean? So I went to high school and they said, okay, well, let me fucking do this. I'm going to put him on a team that's academically challenged for the very select and elite kids because he he's going to fucking fail, right? But I was always smart. I just never felt like doing it. Right. You know what I mean? So so then when I got to high school, A's, A's, 4.0, 3.8, broke the record for, you know, ROTC because I had to do ROTC. Right. Part of the stipulations of me coming back to high school yeah. is I had to be in the discipline ROTC program. So I did that. And they took me over to Fort Leonard Wood. And I did this boot camp thing for like three weeks. And I broke every, I may still have the record. I broke every record they had by minutes. Like I was, I, I lap people because I was just always hated when people thought I couldn't do something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that drove me to a point of obsession, literally. Obsession and, to prove people wrong, to prove people yeah, that you wouldn't be a stat, yeah. you wouldn't be a number. Yeah. I like yeah. it. I think yeah. I, I'm curious, and if you will allow me to jump ahead, you you obviously had the accolades in college. I think MMA for a lot of people um, was a new career, and and then you saw. You had to see someone else do it that you loved and admired and thought, that's what I want to do. And I'm, I'm curious as to who that was for you when you decide to leave school and and venture into this profession. You know, what's funny is people that I watched either were my peers or my future opponents. Hmm. So Rashad Evans was someone I watched. I'm like, oh, we wrestled against him. He was one weight class above me. I wrestled 165, he wrestled 174. I knew him from college. All my Mike Whitehead, that's my teammate from college. Oh, that's Gray Maynard. All these dudes I wrestled, I knew all of them. 50% of the Ultimate Fighter show I knew. So I was coaching collegiate wrestling at University of Missouri, and I watched his Ultimate Fighter show. And I was like, we had a punching bag in the weight room when I was coaching. I'm like, let me punch this bag. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, right? So me and this coach, my coach Horton, we was punching this bag. And it would be like 20, 30 seconds, we'd, be, we'd done. It's a wrap. Then it would build up to a minute. Then we would have challenges. Who can punch the longest? And nobody cared about the technique. Then I got to the point where I can punch three or four minutes straight without stopping. And I was, I was punching fast, punching hard, right? Then everybody on the team, Ben Askren, Michael Chandler, all those guys gassed me up to take a fight. Hey, man, you should take a fight, man. Because they were watching Pride. I didn't know what mixed martial arts really was. Mm -hmm. My high school coach did it. It was open hand, bare knuckle. And I was like, man, I am never doing that shit ever in my life. Fuck that. But then my teammates gassed me up. And at that time, like, I was a, I was big brother. You know what I mean? I taught them how to pick up girls. And they, they really looked up to me. So when they came after me, they, they gave me a nickname. They called me Hot Sauce. Mm -hmm. So they said, we want, you, we want you to go and fight. So I said, all right, fuck it. So I walked down to this gym. And I said, hey, man, I want to fight on your card in two weeks. It was two weeks away. Uh -huh. And then he said, he looked behind his back and he said, is this you on this wrestling poster right here? And I'm like, yeah. He said, all right, you on the card. Put me on the card and um, shit. Went out there, knocked somebody out in like 20 seconds or something real fast. And then all my fights was like really quick, not even a minute. Right. And I was trying to fill out if I like it or not. But I, I had six fights real quick and I'm like, shit, I'm kind of in this now. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. When did you make a name for yourself? When did you say, okay, I'm known. I, I, I'm the main draw. Um, I was already known as a coach. Mm -hmm. I wasn't known as a fighter because I really never knew if I wanted to do it. 
Okay. I was a coach for two years at the University of Missouri. I was a coach for two years at Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville. And at that time, I was being recruited because after Ultimate Fighter 1 and 2, that's when the influx of wrestlers came into it. That's when the Johnny Hendricks and the Jake Rochos and the uh, Rashad Evans and the Gray Mainers and all those wrestlers and Cain Velasquez, we didn't know what the fuck to do with them. They were taking down their grapplers. The grapplers couldn't submit them because their base was too strong. The strikers couldn't keep it on the feet because they couldn't stop them from getting taken down. So I became a very valuable asset. So then everybody started flying me. I was around. Eve Edwards had me in Florida. And Nadine Thomas, who now is my head coach, ironically. So all these guys, I became their number one training partner, training them for title fights, training them for fights in Japan. And I was a bag of bones. You know what I mean? An American top team in Florida, I sparred twice a day. Got the hell beat out of me by so many people, but I paid my dues. I paid my, you know, I paid the cost to be there. And then finally, one day I just thought about it. I'm like, I'm training twice a day. I'm fighting the best fighters in the world. Let me fucking just try this out right quick. I really just tried it. Right quick. <laughs> yeah. I said, let me just see it right quick. All right. All right, Q, let me try this right quick. And I said, well, I'm, I'm in it. I'm doing it. I'm in great shape. And I'm tired of getting beat up. And I, I always, some, since a little kid, stuff always had to make sense to me. I would always look at someone like, why don't you just do that? Or like, mm -hmm. why would I be in this sport and I try to be the champion? It was never an option to me to do this hard, grueling, annoying, five sports in one ass sport and not be the best. So when I did that, I started watching George St. Pierre. I started watching Neymar, who I later fought for a world title strike force. Carlos kind of was and currently still is my favorite fighter. Mm -hmm. I was watching him, and then I had to face him. You know what I mean? Robbie Lawler was a good friend. My son had a school project with his favorite fighter, and it was Robbie Lawler. I'm like, dog, I'm your dad. <laughs> you know what I mean? So these are people I admired. You know what I mean? I admired these people, and they were my peers, and these are people I looked up to. And, and I formulated my game plan off of, like, how GSP trained and how Koscheck trained. And then I end up knocking out Robbie Lawler, who got me on the first Strike Force card. A lot of people don't know that. Strike Force was in St. Louis, Missouri. Mm -hmm. Ironically enough, Jake Shields, who I later fought in the UFC, and Robbie Lawler were headlining in St. Louis. And Robbie and Matt Hughes wanted me to train with them because I was 15 minutes away. Yeah. So I went to their gym and I was training with Matt Hughes mm -hmm. and Robbie Lawler. And they were like big studs, celebrities. And you know what I mean, I was this young amateur guy that was just sure. a good wrestler. And they had me come in there. And then I saw Robbie in St. Louis at the sky. I never forget it. Randomly, I was late. I was almost missing it. I walked past him in the Sky Trade Center in St. Louis for the NCAA wrestling tournament. He was there watching. And I said, Robbie, I said, I heard Strike Force coming to St. Louis, man. I got to be on this fucking card. I got to be on the card, right? At this time, think about how that sounds. Crazy. I'm not even pro yet. Yeah. I'm an amateur fighter. And I'm telling the headliner, that I got to be on this card, right? So Robbie hits me off. You know what, Carrie? Nobody's ever heard the story before. I just thought about that. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> so Robbie gives me the number to Javier Mendez, who's the head coach of AK, which I didn't know. I don't know the fuck Javier Mendez You is. just, you so, just, but you, the, the beauty of this story is not even just the particulars. It is the, the ability that you have no matter what to say, I'm going to be the best no matter what, and I'm going to work hard. And there is so much beauty in being naive and 100% confident because you, I don't know who these people are. I just want to be in. Let me get at it. Yeah. That's beautiful. I mean, honestly, because yeah. when we get when we get older and we become more seasoned, our minds start to think too much. We overthink things and we know things. And when you don't know anything, you just go out there and give it your all. You just put two really good gems in my mind that wasn't there. Because in sport, you're right. 
you get this, you get the, you get the confidence, you get the experience and you start overthinking. And when I was younger, I didn't think, I never thought, I never even thought when I walked in, I got the thought of losing never crossed my mind. I ever. never thought I was going to lose a fight ever. Ever. I just thought it was going to be, I said, I'm never going to lose in this sport. You know what I mean? So at the time, you're right. I didn't think that this punch wouldn't work. Oh, you showed me that punch? My first fight, they showed me a choke and I, right before the fight. And I did it to the guy and I won the fight with it. It was like yeah. literally 20 seconds. I swung, he dropped down, I grabbed his neck and that was it. And um, it's just the way the thing pieced together was just, it just told me that I was chosen for the sport. And that's really why chosen. my nickname is the chosen one. Because I, I've been through hell. I've been through everything you can imagine of dysfunctional home, pop gone, every story you can think of. But my story, ain't the, the ending is not this kid that was on the street corner, shoot him up, bang, bang, in a right. murderous city. And, you know, I lived on that street where the riots happened. That's my yep. street. Yeah, Ferguson. I walked tough. to that quick trip. You know, yeah. I walked to that quick trip. Ferguson has produced some of the, um, and I don't know if you probably know this better than anybody, has produced what I like to call a new generation of civil rights activists. I like the fact that Cori sure. Bush is now in Congress. I love the fact that Brittany yeah. Packett, well, you know, all the people who were on the ground when those riots happened in Ferguson and, and the people who use their platform to speak up are integral and will be a part of the history yeah. books. And with that For being sure. said, you're going to help me transition because I'm, I'm thinking of all the things that you've accomplished um, and your... Um, determination. You have, I remember the very first time I interviewed you, you were unapologetic um, about yeah. being a black oh. man in the UFC and what it means. Talk to me about being a black man in this sport and being vocal about what's not right for mar minorities, marginalized black folks, period. You know what's funny? I was looking for that video the other day, right? And I couldn't find the original. I found someone when somebody recorded the screen, but I couldn't find the original. But at that time, one, somebody had pissed me off earlier that day. It was oh. like, I was really mad. I was really upset and mad right before. And I had to go do the interview right afterwards. And then I had already had in my mind what was going on and the way that things were being played out. Like, so I sat there and I, and I really owed Wonderboy an apology because I really had him coined wrong. Yeah. I had... His fans, and, I, and I've apologized to him, but his fans were what I was deeming him as to be. Sure. And that wasn't him. And I was like, he was trying to talk and I was cutting him off. But I was just tired, Carrie. I'm going to be real. I'm just tired. I was just tired of the bullshit. What I is that? What is okie doke. You were tired of what specifically? Because we know it. You and I can say that in code language, but what was really, yeah. what was exhausting? I mean, what I can say without not being able to get a check cashed is <laughs> I feel like, I feel like spiritually we say this, you know, growing up, weapons was formed against me, right? And I constantly felt like weapons was formed against me. And sometimes weapons were formed against me. And sometimes I was just so used to it. My ability to trust wasn't there. Mm. And I felt like everything was a setup. And I felt like I always had, once again, because you got to think of how I grew up. My trust was never there. I didn't have my, I didn't trust anybody after my dad left. What the hell? Why would I would? I didn't trust another man. I didn't trust another person with my life. I put everything into my hands always. So if I failed, it was on me. So at that time, I just felt like when you look at the way I fought Wonder Boy, right? I nearly battered him the first round. The fourth round, I knocked him down three times and I almost finished him in the show, right? That's two rounds. You only got to win three. Now, now, granted, I'm the champion. And you got to do what? You got to beat the champion. He did nothing in that fight that was damaged 
worthy. You did nothing in that fight that made it look like I was going to be over it. So you're going to tell me that in the first round, I literally, the fight was almost over with then. Yeah. Second round, let's say you won the second and the fifth round, right? And now what I've done, I go back and I watch the third round. Because it's not, if I won the first round, if I won the fourth round, it's not up for grabs, right? Right, right. That's that's clear. Yeah, there was a 10-8 round. So, so the, one judge said the fourth round was a 10 round. One judge said the first right. round, right? So now I'm thinking, Tyron, don't worry about the whole fight. Go look at the third round. And if you won that round, even, even if it was no 10-8 rounds, you won a fight. And I watched it so many times. I won the third round. So in my mind, the fact we're doing this again, I'm supposed to be on to making a bag. Yeah. I'm supposed to be fighting George Saint. You felt like, yeah, you thought you, yeah. you thought they they robbed you. They 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 and took I, it away from you. Like, and I feel like other fighters have been able to do that. And I feel like other fighters was able to fight the George St. Pierre's and Michael Bisbings and Nate or Nick Diaz. They was able to fight the Conor McGregor's. They was able to go up weight class in the fight. And I feel like with me, it was always coined that I would fight the difficult specialist, Warner Boy, twice. I wrote the book on how to beat him. I wrote the book on how to beat Damian Maya. I wrote the book on how to freaking defuse all these brawlers. Um, Robbie was Lowe. there, but was there a reason in your mind why they did this to you, or so you thought it was perceived? I don't think anybody per se did something to me, but at that time, it was it was that I felt like certain things. How do I say this? I felt like at that time I was doing something that's very dangerous. I was comparing myself to other people. Not so much they make this, I should make that because I've always been a good with the. Where my brand is at. I know the numbers. I know what people are making. If Connor's right. making this and this guy's making right. that, right. I'm falling in between somewhere. You can't pay me less than a guy just beat. I know what he made. Mm-hmm. You can't pay me less than this guy got made. I mean, right. You can't pay me less than this guy got paid to fight the same guy and I beat him. Right, right, right. I, you got you to come to me straight. So at the end of the day, I just felt like it was a constant battle every time. Every fight negotiation was a constant battle. Every opponent was a battle. Every date was a battle. Did and you think it was a black man thing? At one point in time, I did think it was a black man thing, but Carrie, to be real with you, in our sport in general, we have a indirect, in the back of our mind, subconscious that an African-American athlete is not supposed to be an endurance athlete. Wait, wait, who, point you, wait we, you're saying the society, sport? I'm saying the sport, I'm saying society, I'm saying just p- people that spectate sports in general. Uh-huh. There was a certain point in time where you wouldn't see very many African-American quarterbacks. Or oh, African Americans in a skilled position, I they see. were more likely to be in a speed position, running back, or track and field, or basketball. They weren't really the they weren't really the point guard, the 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 Stockton, the, sure. the Larry Bears. There wasn't that. There was the Michael Jordans. There was the Dunkers. They was doing things that was miraculous because some somebody down the road said we had an extra calf muscle. And <laughs> I felt like I always had to prove that I wouldn't fade. It was a saying in college: the coaches used to teach their wrestlers. And other African-American wrestlers on the team would listen to them say that. They used to always say chocolate melts. Mm, they used to Basically, say that? No, yes, they did. Wow. My guy came and said that to me later and thought it was funny. And it's still to this day not funny to me. But what they're saying is if you put pressure on them and you stop the original initial onslaught of athleticism and explosion, if you can weather that storm, you can take them into deeper rounds than chocolate melts. We're not, wow. not going to be the ones, unless you're Kenyan, we're not going to be the ones that's going to be winning the... In college, I never won wow. the six-mile run, okay? I never won the, the quote-unquote eight-lap runs. We got to do eight laps in um, eight minutes. That fuck was nearly impossible to me. But guess what? Nobody's ever beat me in a sprint one time. Mm. So in their mind, that doesn't count. When Think about it. Is fighting 
closer to a sprint or closer to a six mile run. Mm, it's a sprint. Know. It's an explosion. Yeah. Anaerobics explode. With that in mind, and I know that you've you know, you're a veteran. You you've seen a lot, so you know more than what you would know when you first came on. But if there's somebody, and there's a lot of somebodies, a lot of people who look up to you, who want to be in this, who want to be in this industry, who are who grow up in the way in which you grew up. You know, small town kid. You know, black, perhaps not meant to succeed, and they're looking at you, and they and they want some type of brown print. What would you tell them? I mean, I can't I can't disclose the athlete because he's, you know, I still want him to be able to do what he, he's doing. But I had to tell him something that's that's really sad I had to tell him. I said I was that was UFC in the sport. I was I came out in 2012. I was a the the top prospect in the world. I was a number one fighter out of every up and coming fighter. They say he's gonna do something. He's gonna be a champion. He's gonna be special, right? So I was deemed the rising star. I was the number one top prospect in the world of all fighters. They said this dude right here, watch out for him, right? I went to I went to UFC and I've had many explosive moments in UFC here. You know what I mean? That first one to do this, first one to do this, knock this person out this way, right? But it's also been some quarreling. There's also been some moments where, you know, I've been blackballed. There's also been some moments where it's some constant conflict with me and Dana or whatever the case may be. But it's been it's been some shaky roles there. So what I had to tell this athlete is he wanted to train with me so bad because he wants to train with a champion. I know what it tastes like. I've won five world titles. I'm not Conor McGregor that never defended one strap. I'm not these guys. Even Usman. Usman got a couple title defenses. I have five against the best guys number one contender, specialist, people, fighter of the year, brawler of the year. Those are the people I beat, Carlos Khan and Kashyyyk, to get there. Last minute notice fighting. I always fought the undefeated, undefeated Gaslam, undefeated um, Darren Till, undefeated um, um, Wonderboy or, or whatever. And I told him, I said, you are being treated well now. You got a buzz now. Don't, don't attach yourself so close to me because I haven't always... Had the you know I haven't always had the, the 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 best the best meetings and I said I don't want your experience to be like mine because of your association. Right. I'll train with you as much as you want. I'll mentor you. I'll teach you everything I fucking know, brother. But don't be watch out all these pictures you taking. You up in my gym? We posting up together. You might start getting trained. I got a I got a female fighter. That's in the UFC. That's my her mother and my dad are brothers and sisters, mm. and nobody will know because I don't want her to. I want her to get a first shake. Mm-hmm. Her mother is my dad's sister, mm-hmm. not not third cousin. Right. My cousin is in the UFC. So you're saying what you've learned as being one of the first may have caused some problems, or may have may come with you know a bad rap in certain uh, situations, and you and you don't want everybody to have that. But at the end of the day, Tyron, people have to respect what you've done in the ring, right? They, like, they should, but I, but, I, but I do think what's going to happen is the respect that people give me for what I've done is going to happen when I walk away. Uh, I think we, 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 we look at Muhammad Ali now. Of course. We wouldn't praise Muhammad Ali at that moment. Come on now. They we didn't love him. We didn't he love Muhammad until he couldn't play no more, couldn't talk no more. Then yeah. we was with, but yeah. then we loved Muhammad we Ali. Loved and that's, by them. the way, that is a thing where people don't give them their roses while they're alive or when they're in the right. Yeah. And I think that you have been able to do a lot of amazing things. Please don't take that for granted and please don't knock yourself um, and believe all the hype. Because, you know, the hype and the hate is never, ever, ever what it is. It's somewhere in the middle. Well, I appreciate that. Really. What, what I, this, is, this is how I think about it. 
I never really got into the sport to be infamous like Connor. I never got into be filthy rich and running around the world's worst. Like I, I, I told you how I grew up. I grew yeah. Up 13 in a house, but got evicted from house. That's why I bought my house in cash. Yeah. Because when my daughter goes to that window, she goes outside, outside. All I think about is when that pink sticker was on my fucking window and I had to walk past the door and all your friends, oh, yeah. all your neighbors knew you lived there. You, your mattresses are out on side and it, like yeah. it's embarrassing, man. It's so embarrassing. So my I said, my daughter, I don't care what it takes for me to dig out of soul. My daughter would never in her life not have a place to call home. So when I, when I look at what I've done, I'm at peace with, I know what I'm doing at the moment. I don't need validation. I don't need someone to confirm who I am. I know who I am. I know what God put me on this earth for. I know how he's going to use me. And I've always known since the beginning, people are going to appreciate what I did, how I did it. And in the time period, I did it when I walk away. And I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to kick some ass. In the meantime, I'm not down and out because I took a couple of lessons. You know what I mean? I was a champion before I got to the UFC. I was a champion before I won a strap. I was a champion because that's the way I live and that's who I am. I won a championship because that's what champions do. Amen. You know that. You know Amen. That Leah, you preaching <laughs> to the choir right here. <laughs> I really appreciate you because you gave me a word. You. you gave me a word right you here, gave my me friend. Too. <laughs> you gave me too, and I appreciate you more All than right. you know. When the, when the uh, pandemic is over and you come to L.A., we'll, we'll catch up for sure. Let's do it. Let's do it for sure. All right. Thank you. Tyron Woodley, I mean, he's a champion, as he just pointed out, in so many different ways. But his story to me is absolutely amazing, uh, especially when you think about how he grew up. Some of my key takeaways, he was one of 13 children and his family knew that he was special. So they invested in him. And the key takeaway there is just invest. If someone says yes to you, I believe in you, you can do it. That one yes, that minor investment can really change your trajectory, especially for a kid who grew up with 12 other siblings. Some people had to make sacrifices, but they did it because they invested in him and they knew that he would be something special. I also like when he talked about (laughs) he has a champion's mindset. He knew all along that he was special. That determination, that dedication that we talked about, that's something that's acquired over the years. He always challenged himself. And according to anyone who's ever been successful, it's that discipline that'll take you to that next level. He had that champion's mindset and he used discipline to get him to that level. And last but not least, this is a message for everybody, myself included. You gotta silence the haters, the naysayers. Oftentimes you have to turn your back on the crowd and lead the orchestra the only way that you know how. People would often tell him that chocolate melts. Coaches would say it. Chocolate melts. He explains that so eloquently in this podcast. But he knew that he had to silence all of the critics in order to be successful. And to this day, he still has to do that. He knows that there are those who don't believe and don't think that he deserves and may look the other way and may not consider him the champion that he is. But he's been able to silence the naysayers. This was a great edition of The Brown Print. Tyron Woodley teaching us how to be great. That's it for this week's episode of The Brown Print. Let's keep the conversation going online. You know I love to go online. Follow us on Instagram at The Brown Print Podcast and on Twitter at Brown Print Pod. Follow me, Carrie Champion, on IG and Twitter. You can find me at Carrie Champion. Don't at me if you got attitude. Well, okay. 
We'd love to hear your feedback. Or if there's a specific topic you want us to tackle or guests that you want us to have on, please reach out to the brownprintpod at gmail.com. Again, at brownprintpod at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. It helps spread the word. It is so important that we stay active and vocal. We'd greatly appreciate it if you showed us some love by leaving a five-star rating and a positive review. If you do not, I know you are a hater. Haha, <laughs> kidding, kind of, not really. Meanwhile, uh, again, five-star rating and positive review. We need it. It really helps the podcast grow. The Brown Print is a Gallery Media Group original production.